Welcome back to another episode of Timber Connect. We're here to help forest enthusiasts explore their curiosities among like-minded people. People who embrace innovation, strive to make a difference, and aspire to continuously improve how we manage our forests. My name is Ty, and in each episode, Julie and I will be diving into research, contentious forestry issues, and industry perspectives from the professionals you want to hear from. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Timber Connect podcast. Ty and Julie here. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Kelly Cooper. Kelly is the founder and president of the Center for Social Intelligence, and is also the host of the Free to Grow in Forestry podcast, a podcast that is working to achieve gender equality and the meaningful inclusion of women, Indigenous peoples, and new Canadians at all levels, from technical to executive level positions within the sector. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Kelly. How are you doing? Well, thank you for having me, and I'm doing great. Wonderful. Glad to hear it. Uh, I know Julie and I have both really been looking forward to this conversation with you, so it's a pleasure to finally have you on. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine how much dedication and hard work it must have taken to get into the position you're in today. So I was hoping you could help us understand a bit. What What was your path to getting to where you are now? Well, I guess the best first quick answer to, that, to saying the uh, answer to that is that uh, it wasn't a direct path. Um, I started out in an environmental science degree from the University of Toronto uh, almost 30 years ago and um, was really at the the forefront of the environmental movement of the 90s, I'd say. And that's where the phrase sustainable development was sort of emerging on the international stage. And I was very captivated by that, by, you know, how do we protect the environment and social issues as well as maintaining the economy Mm -hmm. and not having... um, either the environment or or social issues um, uh, in jeopardy because of the environment. So that was really where I I started. And I really spent the first 20 years of my career focused on the environmental side of sustainable development. And I was blessed with a very good career doing things internationally, um, taking me to India, uh, to Africa, uh, to Brazil, did things with the UN uh, file and did things with the private sector. also with associations. So I really had a, a full spectrum of opportunity in the environmental sphere um, of sustainable development for the first 20 years. And at, um, at that point, I made a decision to uh, leap into the social side. I was very interested to understand, well, okay, we're, we're trying to figure out how to not compromise the environment for the economy. And I've been working in that space for a long time, always dominated by men. And um, founded a little bit old boys network and uh, dominant, and I just got tired of it, quite frankly. And so I thought, I wonder what that whole social side of things is about. And so I decided to look into that and started to, uh, at that particular juncture, I was in the federal government and was moving my way up to senior management levels. Um, And they had um, a pullback on us that were put on French training to come back uh, from French because of cutbacks. And I thought, you know what? I think this is my opportunity and my time to go. So I stepped out and uh, took a big risk, I guess you could say, as a female entrepreneur and decided to uh, do something that was of interest to me and, um, and go for it. So I, I decided to research on what does it mean to be uh, not compromising the social side of sustainable development for the economy? Because it didn't make any sense to me. So I... I had been involved with these environmental projects with um, such things as pipeline projects, for example, where we would be engaging with a whole bunch of stakeholders on uh, their input to the pipeline. 
And that was often seen at the time as the social component, right? Mm -hmm. Or the other part of it was, well, we're going to give money to little Timmy's soccer game and we've done our social side, right? So either way, that's what was at play in those earlier days, but it didn't satisfy me for how you get that return on your investment. Mm -hmm. So the research I did took me into understanding that more and it really got into um, investing in your people inside the corporation that made the difference. And by investing in your people, you were optimizing performance if you had diversity of thought and getting a return on your investment and also reducing turnover of staff. So these things became things that made sense to me. They were mm -hmm. logical. <laughs> I'm a very logical person. And so I was like, okay, I think that's, that's the, the area. That's the lane I want to be in. That's so cool. Were you aware when you're doing your degree in the 90s of all the things that were happening in the forestry sector in BC? Because the 90s was a big time in forestry as well in BC with environmental regulations coming into play and whatnot. I was not aware. No? Yeah. I was not. I was just curious if it had uh, gone across the country or not. <laughs> No, and, and I mean, I really didn't have a breadth of experience in forestry prior to stepping into the social side of things. Right. Um, I had done things in energy and in mining and a whole bunch of other things like environmental assessments and like a lot of policy development. I did go on later to get my master's degree from the University of Sussex in England. Oh, wow. Um, so you could say I, I had an, encapsulated all aspects of environmental issues uh, from, very many, from all different angles. Um, and... Uh, yeah. Sounds like such a, a gainful career and so cool that you've got to travel the world with that. And it's mm -hmm. that's something that I've always okay. questioned too, like the three pillars of sustainability. You have that sociocultural lens, you have that environmental lens, and you have that economic lens. And you've just provided me with a new perspective where, because I was always the same thing, it, it felt like the social component was always just checking a box, whatever they could do to just tick that box. What does investing in your people look like? Like how, how would an organization or company go about that? So what I speak to folks about is about, like, I started out with the focus on women because that's where the conversation was when 10 years ago. Okay. It's since obviously it's expanded quite a bit to include all, uh, ethnicities, all races, genders. Um, and so it's beyond where I started. But what I talk about now is how companies need to diversify their people because through doing that, you have different uh, thought processes, ways of looking at things. And as a result, innovation can occur. And so the first step is to me is to like understand, it's not about representation. People get caught up in representation. It's not about mm -hmm. that because people can get hung up on having a representative group instead of recognizing how to create an inclusive environment that optimizes the innov innovation. And so that's right. where things get a little confusing for folks. And I think we're on a journey here in Canada about understanding the difference. And obviously forestry uh, has, has some work to do in this space, um, which is exciting, right? Like I, as I mm -hmm. talk about with the Free to Grow Forestry Project, uh, I'd like to think of us as moving from laggards to leaders. I've been using that phrase lately, um, mm -hmm. not to be insulting, just to really recognize, hey guys, this is where we are, but this is where we can go. And it's opportune time given um, the demand for labor market uh, in this country. And if you want to differentiate from the other sectors that are demanding people, this is how you can do so. Right. By making yourself uh, more welcoming to all um, people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Could, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the Free to Grow podcast and the whole initiative surrounding it and how it kind of came about? 
So how it came about is that I had been working on a Women in Mining Canada National Action Plan from 2014 to 2017, oh. where I brought together cool. 14 people, 12 from mining companies and two from mining associations to work with me to build a mm -hmm. National Action Plan. And you can find that okay. on my website or on Women in Mining Canada's website. But it was quite a journey uh, because that was under a different political environment um, where they didn't pay the same level of attention to this topic. So it was like kind of like pulling teeth to get people to the table. But anyway, when we got them all together, we were all fired up about how to, you know, overcome the barriers for women and then um, provide strategies and tactics to these companies. And the intention was to create a strategy or provide this report, which gave those tools and tactics and strategies, and that they would then take them on in their companies. So on the heels of that wrapping up, the forest sector approached me and said, hey, can you do something like that for us? Because that looked pretty neat. So under the mining project, it was only private sector companies that were involved or that I engaged in. So I had learned obviously quite a bit going through that process and I wanted to do things a little bit differently this time. So one thing is I wanted to be a partner with a forest facing organization in order to get greater, great credibility as a consultant, because previously I was consulting to an organization. Second thing is I wanted to have a public private partnership for the initiative, which means not just government funding, which is what we got for the mining project, but I wanted private sector to have some funding. So they had some skin in the game. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing was, um, I wanted it not to just be private sector engagement at the table, but I wanted public, private, not-for-profit, indigenous and academics across the country, across the sector, working on that steering committee. That way to me, we were in lockstep and there was no rolling back by doing it that way. So with that in mind, I approached the Canadian Institute of Forestry uh, with, an, with, this, with this idea. So with somebody else in the sector that came forward and said, hey, you know, I think there might be an appetite for this in our sector. And um, from there, uh, we brokered a, a partnership and I uh, submitted an application for funding and off we went. Wow. Amazing. So what kind of, when you're entering a new sector, what sort of research do you have to do in order to be able to help them as effectively as you can? Well, I mean, with that foray into things, um, with the environmental background I had to date, I, I wasn't, you know, clueless to what the issues were, okay? But yeah. uh, I didn't know the depths of things. But this was really more, how do we get the people side? So whether you're a forester mm -hmm. or a miner or an engineer person, sorry, energy person, that's not the main thing. It's about the sort of change management aspects. It's about the people management side. Um, so different skill sets were really required for this initiative than being a forester. Mm -hmm. And I was relying on those around the table who had the forestry knowledge and experience to bring that piece to the table so that collaboratively we built something effective. Mm. You sure have built something effective as someone who, you know, personally does identify with the LGBTQ community. The Free to Grow podcast is something that hits pretty close to home for me as I've had my own journey in this industry. So I just can't thank you enough for promoting that initiative in an industry that I agree we are laggers. Sometimes it feels like forestry stuck in 1970s and really needs to, <laughs> to kind of figure that out. Um, how is it going? How is the Free to Grow program going? I know it's a multi-step initiative and you have several phases i believe that's correct yep so first yeah. of all thank you for that acknowledgement mm -hmm. um but uh to answer your question we're in what i call phase two of the initiative and phase one was the first three years from 2018 to 21 and now we're in phase two so it'll end in the spring of 24. 
Uh, the way I've approached this has been through a change management lens. And uh, what that means is, if you know about the sort of standard or the well-known change management approach, it's called ADCAR, which stands for Awareness, Desire, Knowledge, Abilities, and Recognition. So think of the first phase as the A and the D. That's what we did. Mm. We created awareness and we created a desire to make a change through that awareness. One of the things that was added to that program, you could say, or the three years, was that I wrote a book called Lead the Change, The Competitive Advantage of Gender Diversity and Inclusion. And the reason I wrote that mm -hmm. book is because I could see there was a gap in explaining to executives in layman terms um, why they need to care, what the value proposition is of diversity and inclusion, and then it gave them a blueprint for how to take action. So the book has been an inc incredibly helpful tool for a lot of these executives who have given me a lot, like I've just got nothing but positive feedback. So it's been an excellent part of the story and this journey to transitioning us, I think, through this. So all of that first phase was about awareness and creating the desire. Part of that process, too, is about educating these executives about sort of the, the sustainable development circle that we spoke about, okay? So mapping what we did in environment, but the social. What I mean by that is I, I explain in my book how in the 90s we talked about recycling to improve the environment for the first time, right? And people were like, well, how, why? What, how do you do that? Like, that, what a waste of money. And, but that was an environmental business that started with the intent of preserving and conserving and protecting the environment. And businesses mm -hmm. came out of that, right? Now we're talking about mapping things to the social side and how do we get people aware that this is just part of the continuation of sustainable development thinking. So that's a big piece of the book and the awareness and desire. Now in phase two, it's a long answer, um, we're now at the knowledge and abilities, okay, of the ADCAR model with the grand finale in my mind and vision and hope to have recognition. So at the end, I'd like to see um, us all come together, those who have been a part of this, and celebrate the successes of and give recognition to those individuals, those companies, and the sector overall for the changes they've implemented or taken on this topic. So to answer the part about how's it going, well, um, we've been, I guess we've been in one year, we're into one year of the second phase. Through that process, I've created two executive leadership teams, one's in the West and one's in the East. It's comprised of about 20 executives each. They're in the forest sector and along the supply chain and at the senior executive level in the, gov in the provincial governments. Cool. As expected, um, with something such as this, people are excited at the beginning to get involved. But then as you get into it, some of them are, I think, falling off. They're a little, mm. uh, it's a little too progressive, I think, for some. Mm. Some of them haven't got things in place yet, so can't uh, make certain commitments. And so I'm seeing uh, and expecting a little bit, frankly as part of a change process that you are going to find some people who started out with the ambition and interest, but they're just not quite there yet. So right. our group of 40 might end up being a group of 25 at the end. Um, and I'm okay with that because I, I started yeah. out with a huge ambitious target there and, uh, 25 still good. You know, when I think about our first phase, we had 12 people or so on our steering committee. Well, if I, if I'm coming out with double that, and people working in lockstep on this, then we're 
we're advancing the sector overall. You can't change it all overnight. Right. Totally. <laughs> no, that's definitely true. Yeah. So you have to have perspective. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it takes the, these concepts time to permeate into culture, right? That's and right. I can yeah. only imagine that this would be far, these concepts would be easier to implement in a corporate scale and less in kind of like the smaller, tight-knit forestry operations that maybe only have, you know, 10 people working. Have you found that you have more engagement from, yeah, like larger organizations or are there smaller companies that seem to want to be a part of this as well? It's both. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And some are, and in the East team, I mean, there are more, uh, there are a lot more smaller companies and a lot of them are family run companies. And the perspective I would share about things across the country is that in the West, they're facing this conversation head on. Um, Not that New Brunswick isn't as well with some Indigenous issues, but I think it's just a stronger conversation at play in the West. And I see it rolling out across the country toward the East with time, right? Uh, Things shifting in terms of land ownership and working collaboratively with different stakeholders in a way that hadn't been done before. Mm -hmm. So there are smaller companies in the East uh, that are engaged. Um, we'll see if any of them fall off as we move into the training, because there's a component of, um, getting them to participate in the development of some training modules. So Mm -hmm. one of the things, a big piece of the the three years is to have the training of, um, that was created in first, in the first phase of three reports. One was on overcoming resistance to diversity and inclusion. Another was on inclusive leadership. And the third was on allyship. And when those three reports were produced, the folks that were involved in phase one said, hey, you know what? Those really helpful reports. Could you make those into training for us? So that's mm-hmm. what I've done. And now it's the intent is to roll that out with these teams. But it was clear when I met with them both that they wanted more information on why they need to take action. So we're going to create that together, that front end module. And we're going to walk through the other three topics together and strengthen them with any input or feedback they have. And then have that all available um, with the credibility, you could say, of these leaders um, validating them to to let everyone say, hey, you know, these are these are a useful piece of the puzzle. They're not the whole puzzle. And that's something Mm -hmm. I have to make clear to people time and again. This is not the Mecca. This is just one piece. So that's been that's been an interesting uh, aspect as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm just so, I'm so excited to see where it's going to end up. Totally. And I have a question for you that could probably be an entire episode on its own, but would you be able to give a quick, in your words, what is the value to a company to, to have diversity and inclusion? What's, what is the value proposition for that? Okay. So the, to answer your question, um, without getting into statistics, of course, because I don't have them on the top of my head, but We've mentioned a couple of them already, but it's, it's all, the value proposition of diversity and inclusion is all about creating a, a powerful economic engine of growth for the company through enhanced performance and profitability and through an increased innovation and agile decision making and as well with better business outcomes. And so those come with many different facets. And so it's not a kind of a quick and easy answer. Just for an example, like with safety, there's uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that having women involved with safety um, decreases the amount of injury, accidents, and even fatalities. Um, hmm. There's sort of a different 
workplace environment that comes when you inject even just one woman into a team for the safety component, just to give an example. So it's things like that where you reduce cost, you reduce live uh, fatalities, you know, it's a big deal, obviously. And so um, it's conversations like that and um, facts and statistics that support those things. I'm sorry, I don't have them at the top of my head. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that provide that story and narrative and the value proposition. Hmm. Right. I mean, I totally recognize that even in my uh, forestry training programs with Stillwater, I've noticed the the difference in a lot more women coming into industry, especially into our programs. And one of the best cohorts I ever had, had 10 women, two men. And the morale was just heightened. The kitchen was always clean. They were just <laughs> very like dedicated to their tasks. It was, it was great. And I've, I've even noticed a difference on my forestry crews when, when there is a woman in, in the industry, it really does change the dynamic of the crew. And I'm a huge advocate for that. So I, I think that's so cool that you're, you're doing this initiative. Like I just can't speak enough about it. <laughs> that's um, great. I like hearing that because some days I get pretty, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough job to do. And so I can only um, leave it. it. Yeah. It can burn out uh, a little bit. So good to get the feedback. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's, it's making waves across, across the country. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. One thing I also wanted to quickly ask you about and something that's I've been curious about because you've done with free to grow you have quite a few episodes now on the podcast and I'm curious has there been one story or one thing that has really stuck out with you during a conversation that you've had with anyone specifically I guess the one that I enjoyed a lot was speaking to an executive regarding his mental health issues. So mm. we often don't think of um, including the psychological safety in workplace safety. Mm-hmm. And obviously mental health has become a big deal, more so now than even before because of COVID. But it was his honest and uh, sincere perspective and experience of um, how he had to navigate a persona of having it all together when in fact he had struggles. And because of his um, openness on that podcast, he's had many others come forward in his peer group to, to say, you know what, I was so inspired by your honesty and openness to share your experience it makes me feel good, like makes me validates my own feelings. And that's mm-hmm. powerful stuff. Very, Super you know, powerful. and because with all due respect to, to men, they, they feel they have to always keep it together. And there's no opportunity, frankly, in our society yet to give them that space to be who humans essentially. Yes. You know, oh, um, totally. and one of the things I go on about with the work I'm doing is how we've always focused this conversation on women and women finding their voice. But what I've been saying of late is actually what we need to do is have men find their voice. And what I mean by that is men need to be able to feel comfortable saying certain things. And they should be able to feel comfortable calling their peers out for the things Mm -hmm. they are doing without feeling they have been ostracized from the group. So creating a workplace culture that allows for that is so powerful. 
And so getting to these guys and having them understand that, it's like, I'm sure for them, they'd be like a a big sigh of relief almost. It's like, oh my gosh, are we actually getting to the era that I can show my full self? You know, we talk a lot about bring your whole self to work, but what does that mean, right? It's being able to say these things and have support for doing so. Now, are we there? I do not think we are there. Okay. I can assure you. (laughs) Like, I know it's hard for women to be able to say certain things and, um, and it's black. Our, our society, in my opinion, is getting more black and white than ever before. We're not. Totally. I'm afraid we're not getting to the DNI space that we need to for the conversation to actually take hold. So I'm sharing some right. of those concerns, but because I do see yeah. such polarization in our views, very conservative views coming into mm-hmm. Canada or not coming in, taking hold again, like resurfacing. and. Um, I, I, I have concerns about when this initiative is to wrap up in 24, well, where, where does, what's next? Will this be sustained? Uh, what will, what will happen? Yeah. There's such a, a stigma around it. I mean, it, it took me years of working different roles for me to find my voice and comfortability in showing up to work every day, my full self, because mm-hmm. things that I would hear in crew trucks heading out to the woods. You know, that just makes me recluse and and kind of hide out a little further from from that part of my life. And yeah, there's just that that idea that men just tough up and get to work, like shut up and go to work. No one wants to hear about how you're feeling at home. No one cares. So no, it's particularly bad in forestry as well. Like people would get hurt and be like, got to go to work. (laughs) Your ankle sprain doesn't matter. Walk 5K into that block. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that can create suicides. People yep. feeling mm-hmm. uh, they can't, like they're just shut down. And so yep. there's all kinds of levels of issues that can surface if we don't create the space that's needed. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah, definitely. So that brings me to another concept that's kind of cooking in my brain. So how does a company, you know, what kind of steps can they take to to truly try to increase the equality and diversity and inclusion in their own specific organization. Like if you had one thing to tell one of those executive leaders, what would you say is the number one step that like, this is what you need to do? Well, the first step they need to do is come together as an executive and make some decisions on the framework for action, (laughs) as I call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have to get aligned. They have to get in the same page about all of them understanding the value proposition. And saying, yeah, we're committed to this. Commitment at the senior executive level is the first step. But you right. have to be all there. And um, once you're there, you can start to develop strategy and start walking through that strategy. And there's all kinds of things on that to do. But yeah, it's more, again, it's, it's I always talk about, it used to be that, that this sort of thing was just firmly in the HR um, jobs description, okay? Mm-hmm. But what I've been saying through all of this work is it's not just HR. Okay. It's got to be a three headed lead HR, senior leadership. So, like the president or someone who has direct access to that president at all times, and communications. Those are the three, that's the three headed spearhead for things to work um, effectively and roll it out. You can't just keep leaving it to the HR person. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I'm really optimistic that there is going to be some change. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to finally see podcasts like this exist because podcasts and like you had mentioned with the one gentleman you spoke to, 
it provides people with questions they might not encounter on their day to day. It provides, you know, timeless access to this information, which I think is so important. And, you know, people are listening to this stuff on the drive to work and it is going to take time to permeate in the culture. And we all understand that, but the steps that you're taking with, with the initiative is, you know, I think eventually I'm optimistic it will take off. So fingers crossed, fingers <laughs> crossed. Well, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. Could you quickly remind me what the book that you wrote was called? I, I missed that. I was going to write it down real quick. Yeah, it's called Lead the Change, The Competitive Advantage of Gender Diversity and Inclusion. Okay, amazing. So that will be linked in the podcast bio here as we would love to promote that. Thank you. And for anyone who has listened to this podcast so far, um, and maybe we just inspired you to take a look at what Free to Grow and Forestry concept is and what the program is, we'll also have all that information linked in our bio. So please go check it out. They're all over the socials. And it's an amazing initiative that is supporting people like me and just Julie, everyone. It's just, it's really there for <laughs> everyone in industry. So get out there and support it because we need that. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, we do have one final question for you. It's a quick one. It's just a staple here at Timber Connect that we ask our guests. As someone who has obviously seen a lot of people come and go into industry and, and probably worked with a lot of youth or entry-level workers, what would you say is one of the most common mistakes that you see these entry-level workers making? And do you have any advice on how they can avoid making that mistake? I think that entry-level workers can are, have been really supported in their cohort to take control, that they can take control at a young age. They want to be the, the boss in their 20s. Good mm -hmm. on them. Okay. I, I, I applaud <laughs> the ambition. <laughs> but they need to dial it down in terms of recognizing the experience that they need to have to get to those positions. So I see a lot of people who can be a little bit more um, out, out of step, let's say, with, I, I mean, I know we, we want to get as fast to a level as we possibly can. Okay. And I, and I applaud like stretch assignments and that's what I would recommend to people who are really ambitious, but they have to be cognizant of respecting the, those ahead of them. Cause mm -hmm. I, and I, and there's a bit of a conversation there because Younger people know things that I don't know, like about how to deal with the internet. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's a black box for me. Like my kids can yeah. navigate things. They're practically cyborgs, right? That's, that's what yeah. happens at the younger age. They're, they're more intertwined with technology than our generation. Totally appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Totally value that. However, there's a whole bunch of things that time and experience and exposure to things provides as well that they need to listen to and, and onboard. So I'm not sure if that answers right. your question directly, but no, that definitely oh, does. Oh, we get, we get yeah. all sorts of answers. It's one of those questions that kind of puts people, they go, Oh, I have, I have to think about that one for <laughs> yeah. a minute. So yeah, no, that's a great answer. Enjoy the journey. Yeah. Enjoy the journey and recognize your strengths. It's almost like you need to be um, mentored uh, with a peer. Uh, I mean, a, yeah. a, a more senior person because it's a, it's a two way conversation. That's what I think. Like, totally, I would yeah. love to have somebody younger that I could have helping me in that regard all, all the time. I guess I kind of do. I have kids, but it's, um, <laughs> it's one of those things, right? Where 
I have much to learn from them. I certainly value that skill set, but they have to reciprocate it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's <yeah>. where <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kids can be a little uh, not like they just think they know it all. Right. So. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on your vacation. That was very gracious of you. We really appreciate it. I'm actually out of yeah. my vacation. Oh, you are. But, uh, oh, yeah, okay. I got. I out, I'm out of it. You're out. I, yeah, I'm um, <laughs> happy to be back to work this week. Yeah, excellent. Well, I hope the rest of the week goes smooth for you. And again, thank you so much for for taking time today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you guys. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Timber Connect. If you'd like to hear more, you can search for us on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at TimberConnect or visit our website at TimberConnect.ca. That's all for this episode. We'll catch you again next time.